I remember the day so clearly, Jonathan Schultz writes. There had been weeks of waiting. I was finally there, standing in front of our house on a hot Sydney summer afternoon, eagerly counting down the final few minutes. Cicadas buzz in the background, blue skies punctuated by the swift movement of a flock of birds. Finally, I spotted the right car, the one containing my dad with his restrained grin driving around the corner in his aviators back from the dealership. For years, my dad had been wishing for a new car. I had sat with him on and off for weeks studying the brochure, helping him pick out the color, options, model, and upholstery. I was with him when he placed the order, and now, here I was, a boy not much more than eight years old, about to sit in a brand new car for the very first time, and it was ours. Dad pulled up in front of the house. I hopped in. I recall in vivid detail the sound the door latch made when I opened it, and the secure thud it made when closed. The muted soundtrack and sense of serene allowed my senses to be acute enough to capture every detail. The stereo, dashboard, array of buttons, automatic gear stick, fabric upholstery, spotless floor mats, lush carpet, and that new car smell. I looked for the handle to wind down the window and remembered we had electronic windows in the front and a sunroof. Then we took it for a drive, and that was it. It was everything I'd hoped for and more. The experience sitting there blew my mind. Of course, the natural urge of most humans with a great story is to share it. So later that day, I ran down the lane to one of my closest friends and gave him the full dramatic account of the experience pausing on each and every detail. The message spread. Six months later, his dad took delivery of the exact same car. Experiences are powerful, and what we experience in life shape our Christian faith. Experiences should not define our faith, but serve to strengthen our faith and affirm what we already know to be the facts of our faith as recorded in the Scriptures. As voyagers in what we call life, we will encounter life-changing experiences of all forms that can teach us valuable life lessons. In this new sermon series, we'll be studying the journeys of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. What he experienced in those journeys is what we experience in our life today, although with a 21st century look. So the life lessons and biblical principles from what the inspired scriptures record is very applicable for us today. Now, the first thing we want to take a look at is how we perceive people when we meet them. How do we look upon the people that we encounter every day? Whether they're familiar or new to us, do we see them as people we can use, take advantage of, and get something from? Or do we compassionately look upon them as people whom God loves and has a wonderful plan for? Do we see them as sinners, believe what we hear about them, and feel that they're useless with their problems and emotional baggage? Or do we see them as someone worth giving a second chance to, or someone who deserves the benefit of the doubt? You see, sadly, in the church community today, if someone like the Apostle Paul with his background stepped into the church, he would be condemned, disregarded, and ignored. It would be the same for people like Jacob, Moses, and David, and others in the Bible who didn't have a sterling reputation. But how we naturally see and assess people 
isn't how God wants us to perceive people. He wants us to look at them through spiritual lenses. Now, what do these spiritual lenses look like? Let's see what the Bible says. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 9 as we begin our study in the journeys of Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. We'll be looking at three biblical principles for how we are to perceive the people we meet and encounter every day. Chapter 9 of the book of Acts recounts the story of Saul of Tarsus' conversion. He's also known as Paul. For those of you who don't know, Saul was a highly regarded and intellectually gifted Jewish Pharisee who was adamantly opposed to Christianity to the extent that he would persecute Christians. In fact, in this chapter, he was on his way to Damascus with letters from the Jewish high priest in Jerusalem to persecute the Christian converts in Damascus by finding them, whether men or women, and bringing them bound to Jerusalem. You see, the Romans gave the Jewish religious leaders authority to do as they wished to the Christians, because in their eyes, Christianity was a sect or offshoot of Judaism, with Jesus, the apostles, and the early disciple converts being Jewish. Now, on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appeared to Saul and asked him why he was persecuting him. And through that experience and encounter with the Lord, Saul's life was transformed. His life was changed from persecuting followers of Jesus to asking Christ what he wanted Saul to do. This experience physically blinded Saul, and the Lord instructed him to continue his journey onto Damascus and to wait there for further instruction. This is where we pick up the story in verse 10 of chapter 9. Now, there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. These verses tell us that there is a Christian by the name of Ananias living in Damascus whom the resurrected Jesus appeared to and asked him to seek out Saul to restore his sight. He was even given the Damascus address where Saul was staying. Now look at the response of Ananias in verse 13. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Ananias was naturally reluctant to go because he knew of the reputation of Saul. You see, Saul had a scary reputation, for even the Christians in Damascus knew what he did to the Christians in Jerusalem. Saul was there at the righteous Stephen's martyrdom when he was stoned to death. And look at what Acts chapter 8 verse 3 tells us he did. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Ananias knew that Saul had the religious authority to tie up anyone in Damascus who was a Christ follower. So Ananias had a right to be scared, hesitant to go to Saul as the Lord had asked. But look at the Lord's response in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles 
kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord told Ananias that Saul was someone worth reaching out to because he was worth saving. In God's perspective, Saul was someone he had big plans for, someone special, a chosen vessel whom God would use to stand before Jews and Gentiles and even stand before kings professing the gospel message. And Saul would do the task that God had given him, even though he himself would suffer greatly for the Lord's sake. Bottom line, the Lord was telling Ananias that Saul was someone of great worth to God and to his kingdom work, regardless of his reputation. I read now verses 17 to 19. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. These verses tell us that Ananias obeyed the Lord and went to see Saul, where he restored his sight and baptized him, a public profession by Saul of his faith in Jesus. Prior to the sermon, if I were to ask you, who was the man who baptized Saul or Paul? I think most of you could not tell me. But here, we have this relatively unknown Christian living in Damascus who baptized Saul, one of the greatest evangelists in church history, because he saw as God saw, and thus Saul began his amazing Christian ministry. Now look with me at verses 20 to 22. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. The Bible tells us that soon after his conversion, Saul began to preach that Jesus Christ is the Son of God God Himself to the Jews in the local synagogues and use His knowledge of the Jewish Scriptures and traditions as a learned Pharisee to successfully prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Promised One. His transformation was so dramatic that the people of Damascus were in amazement. Verses 23 to 25, Now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill Him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down to the wall in a large basket. After what had been a few months in Damascus, Saul's life was in danger because of his effectivity in the ministry converting people to Jesus Christ. So fellow Christians helped him escape by night, lowering him over the city walls in a large basket. We find out in Galatians chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, that Saul then traveled to Arabia for about three years, most probably to prepare for the ministry before he entered Jerusalem. In these amazing series of events, we clearly see that when God assesses people, 
He lovingly sees their great worth as His children, special enough to save. And like a parent wanting the best for His children, He sees their potential in His kingdom work. That is exactly what He tells Ananias, who was first reluctant to go to Saul because of his terrible reputation. Instead of his past baggage, God knew Saul's background and life experience was perfect to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Greek-speaking Gentiles. My friends, when you encounter someone, do you see them as a sinner in need of a Savior? Do you see them as God sees them, as His precious children whom He has great plans for? Do you see their great potential in fulfilling the work of the Great Commission regardless of their background? You should because this is how God sees us and how He sees all people. You see, the first biblical principle for how to perceive people is number one, expectantly see a person's potential in the master plan of God. Expectantly see a person's potential in the master plan of God. Just because a person isn't like you in terms of your interest or personality doesn't mean he or she can't make an impact in the work of the Lord. Do you know who are the best people to reach musicians for Jesus Christ? Other musicians. Do you know who are the best people to reach athletes for Jesus Christ? Other athletes. Do you know who are the best people to reach business people for Jesus Christ? Other business folks. Do you know who are the best people to reach intellectuals for Jesus Christ? Other intellectuals. Do you know who are the best people to reach young people for Jesus Christ? Other young people. Do you know who are the best people to reach seniors for Jesus Christ? Other seniors. I hope you see my point. Every person you meet and encounter has the potential to do great things for Jesus Christ in the unique sphere of influence they're in and with their unique background and life experiences. Just like you, every person who places their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior has a unique role to play in God's kingdom as His chosen vessel to reach out to the lost. The diversity of the church is its strength, not its weakness. So when you look upon someone not like yourself, don't look down on them. Instead, see how they would fit into God's master plan and with hope see their potential in the Lord. This perspective will encourage you to win them to Christ so that they can do great things for Him. You know, Christians like actors Stephen Baldwin, Gary Busey, and Kirk Cameron, sports stars like Jeff Gordon, Bubba Watson, and George Foreman, writers like C.S. Lewis, musicians like M.C. Hammer, martial arts experts like Chuck Norris, and wrestlers like Mr. T are making an impact for Christ in their respective spheres of influence, reaching out to people you and I could not reach because we don't have their network or their backgrounds. Recently, I was listening to a podcast about one of the most amazing transformations for Christ in the life of the rocker and music legend, Alice Cooper. Although famous rock and roll star Alice Cooper grew up in the church, he strayed from his Christian roots over his 50-year career as a performer. However, after living the rock and roll lifestyle, Cooper felt empty. I grew up in a Christian household, Cooper told NBC News in 1996. My dad was a pastor, and he was an evangelist for 25 years. I used to go up and do missionary work with him with the Apaches in Arizona. 
In fact, my grandfather was a pastor for 75 years. My wife's father is a Baptist pastor. So I always refer to myself as the real prodigal son because I went out and the Lord allowed me to do everything and then just started reeling me back in. When you get out there, you realize that you've had every car, you've had every house and all that. You realize that that's not the answer, that there is a big, big nothing out there at the end of that, he added. Materialism doesn't mean anything. A lot of people say that there's a big God-shaped hole in your heart, and when that's filled, then you really are satisfied. I think that's where I am right now. I'm very young in the faith, even though I grew up in it. A significant part of Cooper's testimony was his fight for sobriety after his wife Cheryl threatened to leave if he did not quit drugs and alcohol. One of the deals was we started going to church, he continued. I was a poster boy for everything wrong. And then when I got sober and came back to the church, I realized that's where I belonged. Cooper said that both the doctrine of God's justice and Jesus' sacrifice helped him come to Christ. I came to Christ because of my fear of God, he confessed. I totally understood that hell was not getting high with Jim Morrison. Hell was going to be the worst place ever. In fear, I came back to the Lord. But I went to another church, and that pastor preached the love of Christ, which now you put the two together, it was exactly right. Cooper noted that his lifestyle immediately changed after salvation. I knew that there had to either come a point where I either accepted Christ and started living that life, or if I died in this, I was in a lot of trouble, and that's what really motivated me, he said. I don't think we accept Christ. I think we accept the fact that He accepted us. You can't put that into words, he added. It's because God opens your eyes, and it's supernatural. When the Lord opens your eyes, and you suddenly realize who you are and who He is, it's a whole different world. I went to my pastor, and I said, I think I got to quit being Alice Cooper now. And he goes, really? Do you think God makes mistakes? Look where He put you. He put you in the exact camp of the Philistines, and you were basically the leader. Now, what if you're Alice Cooper, but what if you're now following Christ? And you're a rock star, but you don't live the rock star life. Your lifestyle is now your testimony. And because of his transformed life, many people came to know Christ because of Alice Cooper. My friends, can you see a person's potential in the master plan of God? If God can change the life of Alice Cooper and Saul of Tarsus, He can do it in anybody's life for His glory. Now look with me at verse 26 of Acts chapter 9. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem to introduce himself to the disciples there, they were initially unsure if he could be trusted or not. He had seemingly disappeared for three years after his time in Damascus. No one in Jerusalem could really vouch for him, and his notorious reputation as a great persecutor of Christians was still with him many years later. Naturally, the believers in Jerusalem were afraid of Saul and doubted his true conversion to Christianity. 
They may have even thought he pretended to be a Christian to take names and then arrest them all. Well, look at what happens, verses 27 and 28. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. At a time when Saul most needed an advocate, we have Barnabas who comes into the picture. Barnabas was a well-respected Christian in the early church who reached out to Saul. He accompanied Saul to meet the apostles and the church leaders in Jerusalem to vouch for him. Saul then assured them of his true conversion on the road to Damascus and how he boldly preached Christ at Damascus. And because of Barnabas' sterling reputation, Saul was accepted into the Christian community at Jerusalem. Notice how Barnabas encouraged the Jerusalem leadership to focus on Saul's present actions and not on his past transgressions. This is the type of person Barnabas was. Not only was he known to be an encourager, as his name speaks of this quality, but he was a person who understood the importance of present action over past actions. Look what he did in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was seemingly a person of means, a landowner with a good pedigree from the priestly tribe of Levi. But to him, what was most important were present actions and not resting on his past laurels or pedigree. And so he sold land and brought the money from the sale of the land to the apostles to be used in the present work of the early church. It was because of his present work of charity and encouragement that Barnabas was well-known in the church. And so Barnabas not only encouraged Saul by serving as his advocate, Saul benefited from Barnabas focusing on his actions, his godly actions in Damascus versus his terrible past reputation in Jerusalem. And because of his vote of confidence, Saul was able to show the church in Jerusalem what he was able to do. I read now verses 29 and 30 of Acts chapter 9. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. The Bible tells us Saul boldly preached Christ and even debated against the Hellenists or Jews from the Greek-speaking lands. In fact, it seemed he was so effective that the Jews in Jerusalem tried to kill him like they tried to do so in Damascus. And so the Christians in Jerusalem brought Saul to the port city of Caesarea and put him on a ship to his hometown of Tarsus which was a Roman city in the southeastern coast of the modern-day country of Turkey for his own personal safety. You know, these interactions give us another wonderful biblical principle for how we are to perceive people. Perceiving people, number two, lovingly focus on a person's present actions rather than their past. 
lovingly focus on a person's present actions rather than their past. You know, it's very natural and easy for us to focus on the sordid past of someone instead of seeing how they have changed in the present. In our Asian culture, if someone has done something wrong, that one wrong sadly defines who they are for the rest of their lives, and it's hard to shake off. Reputations often fairly or unfairly define a person, and it can lead to devastating results and hopelessness. However, in Christianity, the focus has always been on the present. That's why there's hope in Christ, because Jesus came to the world to die for us in order to provide salvation to sinners by forgiving our past so that we have a clean slate in the present. In Christ, there is true life change when the Holy Spirit indwells you. And if there is true life change, then the focus should naturally shift from the past to be on the present. Remember what Jesus said to the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, Go and sin no more. Jesus cared more about what the woman did ongoing than on her past lifestyle. When Jesus met Peter by the beach after his resurrection, did he focus on Peter's betrayal? No. We find in John chapter 21 that Jesus forgives Peter and tells Peter to feed my sheep, encouraging Peter to follow him, focusing on Peter's present actions. When I think about my own life, if people focused on my past life, I probably shouldn't even be a pastor, much less the pastor of GCCP. But the redemptive work of Jesus Christ through God's grace gave me another chance. And thankfully, a church with the word grace in its name focused more on my present actions than my past and accepted me as their pastor. And my friends, this should be how we perceive people we meet every day and how we perceive people in our church community. We focus on their present actions versus their past. Because remember, even the most hardened criminals can be truly changed through the power of the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. People can and do change. I think of someone in our community who has publicly shared about the playboy life that he lived as a married man. But his life was so transformed by God that he's now a missionary with a Christian organization teaching men and women about how to build biblically healthy marriages. God transforms life. There is true life change in Jesus Christ. My friends, if you're going to focus on how people are living in the present, let me also ask you a question. How are you living your life in the present? Do you rest in the laurels of your past spiritual accomplishments, or are you actively living for the Lord in the present? Now go to Acts chapter 11, and look with me beginning in verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The author Luke tells us that because of the persecution that resulted in the death of Stephen, 
Christians were scattered across the Roman world. And these Jewish converts to Christianity primarily shared the gospel to those who were ethnically and culturally similar to them, other Jews. But then Gentile men from the island of Cyprus and North Africa came to Antioch, a great Roman city of commerce. And there, the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians preached the gospel to them, and many of them came to accept Christ as their personal Savior. The news that many non-Jews or Gentiles were coming to know Christ reached the church in Jerusalem. Look what they did. I read now verses 22 to 24. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The Bible tells us the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to Antioch to see what was happening. And when he saw the work of God in the lives of these Gentiles, he rejoiced. And as was true to his nature, he encouraged those young believers in the Christian faith. You see, my friends, after conversion, discipleship is essential. Perseverance and maturity in the Christian faith and Christian good works are not automatic. Sanctification happens in discipleship. Interestingly, in verse 24, it describes what a well-respected man Barnabas was, and that through his ministry, even more people came to know the Lord in Antioch. His esteemed reputation would mean that his report to the Jerusalem church would carry great weight. But instead of going back to Jerusalem to report what was happening in Antioch, look what Barnabas does. I read now verses 25 and 26. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. But when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. To our surprise, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to bring Saul to help him in the ministry work at Antioch. Perhaps Barnabas realized that the work among the new Gentile converts was too heavy for him to do himself, and he realized he needed Saul. What humility on his part. Remember the last time we heard from Saul, he was escaping people trying to kill him in Damascus and in Jerusalem and went back to his hometown in Tarsus. You know, if I was in Barnabas' shoes, I don't know if I would want to get Saul to help. Maybe another one of the more notable apostles. Certainly not someone with the past baggage that Saul had. Certainly not someone like Saul who had people wanting to kill him. But perhaps Barnabas saw in Saul someone worth giving a second chance to. So he decided to give Saul the benefit of the doubt to work with him and thus advocated for him. Barnabas sought out Saul. And as we will soon find out, Saul will rise to the occasion. Now I want you to note at the end of verse 26 that it tells us that it was at Antioch that people first called followers of Jesus Christians, literally Christ followers. You see, Christianity was becoming more distinct to the public from its Jewish roots. You see, the hopeful message of salvation in Jesus Christ and the life transformation it brought made a mark in the eyes of the people of Antioch. Perhaps seeing the previous persecutor of Christians, Saul, 
working with Barnabas to proclaim Jesus made that distinction even more stark. Again, when you give people the benefit of the doubt, they will often rise to the occasion. Saul certainly did with the advocacy of Barnabas. Now jump over to chapter 12, verse 25. I want to note something. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. The Bible tells us the church in Antioch raised funds for the church in Jerusalem to help with their needs because there was a famine. And the church in Antioch entrusted Barnabas and Saul to bring the money raised to give to the elders in Jerusalem. Again, you see that Saul had earned the trust of the Christian leaders, proving himself and rising to the occasion when given the benefit of the doubt. On their way back to Antioch, they brought back John Mark, who was Barnabas' cousin. We will find out later that John Mark was young and inexperienced. But in this verse, we see that Barnabas was willing to give John Mark the benefit of the doubt. So you have this trio, Barnabas, Saul, also called Paul, and John Mark, with Barnabas pushing to have these two newbies in the ministry with great potential joining his team to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Saul was one who had a past and with it reputational baggage, and John Mark was one with no experience. Both needed to be given the benefit of the doubt, and that is exactly what the esteemed Barnabas did. Both would turn out to be great men of God who did mighty things for the Lord. And from these experiences, we can extrapolate our third biblical principle for how we are to perceive people, perceiving people number three. Graciously give a person the benefit of the doubt. Graciously give a person the benefit of the doubt. You know, this outlook is what we want to instill in our church culture, that regardless of what you did in the past or how people perceive you, if you have sought forgiveness from God and are living a life that reflects a true Christ follower, then you will be given the benefit of the doubt in this church community. Some people may say that giving people the benefit of the doubt is naive in the sinful world we live in. And for sure, there will be times you will be burned and be mistaken when you give a person the benefit of the doubt. But it's okay, because better to take the chance and be proven right than to not take the chance and be proven wrong. You see, my friends, we have a tendency to believe the worst in others because we've been burned in the past, perhaps, or because we've been misled or been disappointed. But the Bible teaches that we should continue to be hopeful and to show grace while not ignoring truth because this is how God deals with us. He treats us with love, grace, and mercy. He gives us second chances over and over again, hoping that this time we will do better and prove Him right. He believes the best in us through His enablement instead of the worst in us. He is always so hopeful that we will turn our lives around and truly and genuinely live for Him. If this is the heart of God, shouldn't we have the same heart for others? We should give people the chance to shine for Him. We should give them the opportunity to rise to the occasion and use their talents for His glory. The church should be a place where broken and sinful people are given a second chance and an opportunity to shine for Jesus because we should reflect the heart of Christ. So, my friends, 
as we encounter various types of people every day with unique backgrounds and reputations, let us, number one, expectantly see a person's potential in the master plan of God. Number two, lovingly focus on a person's present actions rather than their past. Number three, graciously give a person the benefit of the doubt. And my friends, we do these things because that is exactly how our Heavenly Father looks upon each one of us. God lovingly sees us as people worth saving. So He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for us in order to give us eternal life. God graciously gives each one of His dear children at least one spiritual gift to serve the body of Christ, using our past life experiences to reach out to certain niche groups with the gospel message. God doesn't dwell on our past, but looks to see how we are faithfully living our lives for Him in the present. And He keeps on giving us the benefit of the doubt by His grace, forgiving us through the blood of Jesus Christ, not so we can take advantage of Him, but because He genuinely is wanting the best for us and for us to succeed in this life. If that is how God looks upon us, when we look upon others, can we do so in the very same way as our Heavenly Father does with love, grace, and mercy? May God bless you in your journey. And as you encounter people in your lives, may those encounters be a special time where you can see God working in your life and in their lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these reminders through your word. When we look at people, we have to understand how you saw us, sinners, yet worthy to be saved. And through your love and grace and mercy, you've given us so much, given us the benefit of the doubt. You give us second chances. May we also extend the same grace and mercy to others so that we can see the great potential lived out in their life through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I pray that you would bring this church together, united, to celebrate our diversity, to see that each person has a very special role they need to play in the gospel work. Bless your people who have listened to this message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 